This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphne, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing great. After some technical issues on a late, late night recording, we are, we're back in business. We're finally ready to go. We're Thursday night. Go. We're almost going to start, <laughs> I mean, almost getting close to 8 p.m. now. Um, anyway, things are well. We're going to skip you. Uh, we're going to skip some of the details of what's going on these days. Things are good for us, but we have mm-hmm. so many papers to review. Um, I think we should just jump right into it. Let's do it. Um, we have a few papers dealing with phototherapy and bilirubin, and I think they're quite interesting. The first paper is called Update on Phototherapy and Childhood Cancer in a Northern California Cohort. First author is Gene Digitali. And last author is none other than Thomas Newman. And uh, you'll find out why this is so important. So... The background of this paper is critical for you to read. I know that sometimes we say you can just skip the background, go for hypothesis and see how the methods are laid out. But in this case, it matters. The reason being is that they're referring to two prior studies, one of them by Thomas Newman that was um, published some years back. I think it was in 2016. And this study that was also published in pediatrics uh, previously reported on the association between phototherapy and cancer using um, using billing data, right? I mean, they were using at, they were looking at codes uh, for cancer, for different types of malignancies, I guess we should say, uh, between 1995 and 2011. And they had reported that the study um, had reported that phototherapy was associated with higher rates of any type of leukemia and non-lymphocytic leukemia in, an, on an, in the unadjusted uh, model. Um, however, when they, they did the propensity-adjusted uh, analysis, that, that sort of went away. They're quoting another uh, study by, by Auger and Al, who uh, reported the association between phototherapy and childhood cancer, again, using administrative data from Quebec. And so in this report, what they're trying to do is to really do something that we don't see very often in, in our field and in medicine in general, which mm-hmm. is just repeating the study, looking to see if they can confirm the data, um, And uh, again, they're making some tweaks. I think they're making improvements in the methodology. And uh, so it was very interesting to see because obviously the idea of associating phototherapy with potential malignancies has has deep ramifications in terms of how we treat babies. Many physicians often put babies on phototherapy before thresholds are reached just to try to quote unquote, keep the belly down. But if there's truly an association that that practice really has to be... um, banned. Um, so anyway, so it would be interesting. Um, and so what they did is that they, um, they looked at data from the Cal- the Kaiser Permanente uh, Collaborative, the KPNC. I forgot what KPNC stands for, actually. It doesn't matter. 
but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they looked at uh, a group of pretty much 750,000 children, all born 35 weeks or older, uh, between 1995 and 2017. So like I said, it takes back that data from the other paper and extends it by an extra six years. Mm -hmm. um, they categorized the children um, into a neurotoxicity group based on gestational age, based on uh, whether they're uh, Coombs positive uh, or Coombs negative, and compared all their total serum belly levels uh, to the relevant phototherapy thresholds using the paper from the AAP published in 2004. The exposure of interest was obviously the, whether they received phototherapy. It was a very binary uh, during birth hospitalization or readmission. The outcome that uh, mattered was codes for, um, codes for childhood cancer in either inpatient or outpatient encounters. Something that they did there that can go unnoticed is the fact that they said we required at least two diagnoses mm -hmm. of cancer from different departments or different days to reduce false positive diagnoses. I think that was key, right? When you're doing mm -hmm. billing data, you think about that and it, and it makes so much sense because if, if that code appears only once and doesn't appear later and maybe somebody either suspected mm -hmm. or entered it by mistake, you really need that second or third and so on data points to say, yeah, there was actually a confirmed diagnosis. Um, yeah. When you, when you think about how we, how we write our notes, for example, there are so many, app, so many times where you don't have the rule out or suspected as the modifier and you have to use the diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. So absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the many pitfalls of using, mm -hmm. of using coding databases. Um, they did exclude cancers occurring before 60 days saying that the, 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 the connection between phototherapy and the diagnosis probably was not really related. And uh, they had a different, they had a whole set of classification of the various type of malignancies. The follow-up time was the time at risk in primary analysis was defined as, as uh, starting at the age of 60 days and ending at whenever that first cancer diagnosis or uh, censored at the age of the last encounter to date in that KPNC facility up until 2019. So let's look at their results because that's what really uh, we're all here mm -hmm. for. And um, in the end, in these 750,000 infants, 140 or approximately 140,000 uh, newborn had qualifying bilirubin levels and were included in the study, of which 30% received phototherapy, which is quite impressive. I mean, when you look at it in terms of mm -hmm. these large numbers, 30% receiving phototherapy is quite a large number. Um, infants um, who did and did not receive phototherapy differed in the expected ways, I'm assuming, when it comes to, um, when it comes to different risk factors and serum bilirubin levels and so on. In unadjusted analysis, what they found was any cancer, any hematopoietic cancer, any and acute uh, lymphocytic leukemia, ALL, were associated for phototherapy. So sort of confirming, actually confirming the, the findings of the other mm -hmm. two studies. However, when they adjusted after adjustment for confounding variable using propensity score quintiles, none of the association remained statistically significant. And that's presented in table mm -hmm. three of the paper. The association between phototherapy and any cancer, as well as any hematopoietic cancer, was attenuated. The point estimate for the adjusted hazard ratio for non-lymphocytic leukemia decreased to 0.72. Of note, major contributor to the difference mm -hmm. between this adjusted HR and the crude IRR were Down syndrome and early hyperbilirubinemia. And I think that was, that was obviously very interesting because mm -hmm. these are obviously... Uh, significant, significant contributors to potential malignancies down the, down the road. 
In models that allowed for time-varying hazards, we similarly found no evidence for increased risk of cancer either before or after four years of age. Dividing the follow-up period at age six years similarly revealed no evidence for increased cancer related to phototherapy. So um, I think that was that was very interesting, right? Because it's very rare that you mm -hmm. see a group revisiting their own data and uh, really trying to make a conclusion that is, even though it's, 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 along, it's along those lines, but it reinforces the idea that when you actually look at the data a bit more carefully, that relationship mm -hmm. that could have been there is actually not. And, and so, so the main conclusions of the paper is that they, we did not, and, and I quote, they said, we did not confirm previous concerning association between phototherapy and adjusted risk of any cancer, non-lymphocytic leukemia, or brain and or central nervous system tumors in later in childhood. What, what do you think of that paper, Daphne? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, it used to be the mainstay of academic meta academia is that you would try to replicate other people's studies so we could be sure of the work that, you know, we were doing. And now it's so uncommon, right, for anybody mm -hmm. to replicate anything because you just want to find something new. It hasn't been studied, but there is value to to redoing studies or having other people redo the same study um, to make sure that our conclusions are are correct. So I, I think it was really great for them. It's a great reminder that when we look at our confounding variables, that they they change <laughs> they change mm -hmm. the whole potential outcome. And, and, and I agree with you. I think this is an important thing for us to look at because you can imagine that there's a pathophysiologic mechanism for this to be true, for there to be an association. And so it's scary for something that we do, uh, you know, we think is a pretty benign thing um, to, to look at that. So, And that's, do, and that's the key. That's exactly yeah. what you're saying. Something that's benign, because we tend to call this physiologic right. hyperbilirubinemia. But when you look that in the unadjusted analysis, mm -hmm. you have kids who have Down syndrome, right? Which is notoriously known to be a huge risk factor for malignancies down the road. Right. Or babies who have hyperbilirubinemia mm -hmm. within 24 hours of life, which yeah. if you're doing board review, like it's the question that like hyperbilirubinemia in the first 24 hours of life is not normal. It's a big red flag. So how can these babies be grouped uh, with the rest of the cohort? And you see that when those confounders are accounted for suddenly that 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 association that was initially found dissipates and that's and that's reassuring to see obviously i do think it'd be interesting to look at some of the extremes right so some of the babies who have very very high bilirubins who are on very very prolonged phototherapy it'd be nice to see some of that work so we can put this to rest but mm -hmm. i'm glad Agreed. they did it yeah um, so that, that leads us to um, our next paper. This one is not published in pediatrics. It's published in neonatology. And it's called Our Specific Total Serum Bilirubin Percentiles for Infants Born at 29 to 35 Weeks of Gestation. And uh, this is a paper that, can, that has, uh, first author is Tivia Gigathesan, and it's coming from the group out of Toronto. I hope I didn't butcher the first author's name. Um, some big names in, in that paper, obviously, we, we note the presence of uh, Dr. Bhutani and uh, Doug Campbell as well, who's a Twitter friend mm -hmm. of ours. Um, so this is something, obviously, that everybody is struggling with, uh, which is that how can we um, have reference values for hyperbilirubinemia in babies who are not uh, included in that AAP paper from 2004 mm -hmm. and who are less than 35 weeks? So 
this paper is uh, trying to take a stab at this. And um, the, the, they mentioned that the current study was undertaken to generate our specific pretreatment TSB, uh, total serum bilirubin percentiles, uh, percentile curves among preterm infants born 29 to 35 and six weeks gestation, including by degree of prematurity, subsequent receipt of phototherapy, and by influential factors such as enteral feeding and laboratory confirmed ABO incompatibility. So obviously something that mm -hmm. when you read the title, you're really craving to, to read. This is a multi-site retrospective cohort study. And uh, obviously they included preterm between 29 and 35 and six. And interestingly enough, they uh, excluded newborns who had uh, RH disease. Um, and so, um, so that I think is an important, mm -hmm. is an important uh, uh, detail to mention. Um, I think they do in the, in the method, they do explain this. So they do say that infants with RH disease were excluded as these infants are identified and managed prenatally through maternal blood work and prenatal screening. The current study focused on care provided to the infant postnatally. Um, and so that's, that's how they're, they're, they're explaining that, that, uh, that exclusion criteria. Um, Infants who met the main inclusion criteria were further assessed for completeness of their electronic medical records. So they looked at all different parameters and the list is quite long and you can, you can take a look at that. So uh, something I liked, obviously, is that they, they, they shared their sample size calculation mm -hmm. and they said using the methods for reference limits by um, Bellera and Hanley, in order to obtain a 2.5% and 97.5% reference limit with a relative margin of error of 10% for a Gaussian distribution, the minimum sample size of 448 preterm infants was required. Um, mm -hmm. They were able to collect data on 2,549 infants um, and they had at, who had at least one pretreatment total serum bilirubin level available from birth to 72 hours of age. Obviously, these babies met the criteria for the gestational age. The mean gestational age and birth weight of the study group was 32.6 weeks and 1,915 grams, uh, respectively. So, for us Americans, <laughs> says the French guy, um, but the <laughs> but the uh, the bilirubin levels that are measured in the paper are in micromole per liter, mm -hmm. and I don't know. Uh, I'd be curious to see how many of our listeners are actually measuring bilirubin <laughs> levels in micromole, but I, my, but I do think most of us here in the U.S. at least are using milligram per deciliter. Right. And so it's very confusing to read That's this paper. Right, <laughs> right <laughs> because, because you're thinking, well, in my practice, what do we right. do? Right. <laughs> so you're, you're, you know that from the Bhutani graphs and stuff <laughs> that like, oh, like a billy of 20 milligrams per deciliter is, is exchange level. And then here they're like, okay, so for the 40th percentile, 52.3. It's like, wait, what, what am I reading? So for, for the audience that's interested, the conversion rate between micromoles to, per liter to milligrams per deciliter is a factor of 17. So if you want to go from micromoles per liter to milligrams per deciliter, you have to divide by 17. So all the values you'll be reading in this paper, just divide them by 17 and you'll get, you'll get the uh, milligrams per deciliter. So uh, that's just, uh, yeah. Because it could be quite discouraging to say, oh, no. Um, <laughs> but basically, they were able to build uh, very nice normograms looking and, and highlighting the 40th, 75th, and 95th percentile. And, um, and, and, I incur and we'll post some of these graphs on our, on our Twitter account. The thing that were interesting to me um, was when they looked at their values by either degree of prematurity and by feeding type. So... 
um, they had a total of 1,120 infants um, were born between 29 and 32 and six weeks of gestation. And um, when they're looking at their total serum bilirubin rate of rise from birth, it was generally similar between the two gestational the two gestational age groups that uh, they looked at. So they looked at 29 to 32 and 6, and 33 to 35 and 6. What was interesting about the degree of prematurity was that the estimated total serum bilirubin level rate of rise from birth was generally similar between the two gestational age group, except at the 95th percentile, where the estimated total serum, serum bilirubin rate of rise was higher among the infants born at 33 to 35 mm -hmm. weeks of gestation compared to those at 29 to 32. So it's interesting that, that this, this late preterm group actually has a higher rate of rise when it comes to those higher numbers. Another thing that was interesting is that pretreatment ability level percentiles peaked earlier among the latter than the former. So they when they looked at um, babies who were born between 33 and 35 to 29 and 32. So the, the peaked, the, 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 the serum peaked higher in the more premature group within the first 72 hours after birth, the mean pre-treatment Billy level peaked significantly earlier in the pr more preterm group, 29 to 32 weeks than those born later. Um, Interestingly enough, one last point about prematurity, furthermore, significantly more infants born at 29 to 32 weeks received phototherapy than those at 33 to 35 weeks. I think we're still very much afraid of, of high bilirubin level mm -hmm. in extreme preterm. The last thing that was interesting is that they looked at babies based on feeding type. Overall, among all infants, the mean belly between birth and 72 hours was significantly higher in infants who were exclusively uh, who was who were receiving exclusively enteral nutrition than those receiving TPN or a combination of both. I think that was kind of surprising, right? Because yeah. <laughs> we, tend, we tend to think enterohepatic circulation should, should do its job there. Um, but somehow that is not what they found. So again, it does not really answer the question as to what should we do with kids born 22 to 29, right. but it's kind of nice to have normograms for babies between uh, 29 and, and um, between 29 and 35. The normograms are really good. Mm -hmm. The x-axis goes per every six hours. So you start at, at zero hours of age all the way down to 120 hours. Um, that's really helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of great work, amazing data, very easy to use. But I think it would complicate my day-to-day -day life, <laughs> the, yeah. right? Because there are more details, more factors when, when really the way we use Billy Rubin cutoffs right now is, is quite simple. No matter what you're mm -hmm. using, it's quite simple. Um, and I wonder, you know, are we under-treating for, for hyperbilirubinemia? I'm not sure that we are, um, but, but having the data laid out... Um, is it yeah, is so interesting to look at? It's interesting to look at. It doesn't tell you, it doesn't tell you what the long-term risks are, whether you're right. at the 40th percentile, whether you're at the 75th percentile. Um, usually high intermediate risk is, is 75th percentile, I believe. Is it? I think so. I think so. Um, but when we look at our, our current graphs, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's what it is. Maybe I'm, I'm speaking, maybe it's, high, yeah, I think high intermediate risk is. is mm -hmm. So anyway, um, yeah, cool paper. Check it out. Yeah. That's our summary. Well, that's our summary. Um, 
Well, I think we have a, a slew of developmental papers um, this month, uh, this uh, set of few weeks. So um, I'll get started. We've got one um, in the Journal of Pediatrics, uh, Neurodevelopmental Outcomes Following Intrauterine Growth Restriction and Very Preterm Birth. Um, lead author, uh, Chiara Sachi. I'm sure I, I, I ruined that. I think that, that's right. But, <laughs> um, this is a, a, a collaboration between the University of Padova in Italy and King's College of London in the UK. Um, and the study represents actually secondary analysis of a previous study, the Evaluation of Preterm Imaging Study, um, which was a randomized control trial that looked at MRI compared with ultrasound, um, and how does that change uh, the care for babies preterm in their families? So they recruited infants less than 33 weeks gestational age between 2010 and 2013 from the London Perinatal Network. Uh, they looked at term equivalent MRI, and in the original study, they also were comparing to um, ultrasounds that the infants had had. Um, they looked at um, clinical chart data uh, regarding the delineation for IUGR. And I actually thought this was quite interesting. So they looked at babies that were less than the 10th percentile for gestational age, our typical definition of IUGR. But they also mm -hmm. included babies who had antenatal abnormalities on fetal scans, including like their Doppler ultrasound velocimetry. So I thought that was an interesting way um, to include more babies in the, in the IUGR group. And, and yeah. because uh, so much of the antenatal testing relies on uh, size, we may miss some babies because we, we, uh, we assume they're a different gestational age based, based on their size. So I, th I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Those are the absent and reverse uh, diastolic flows, right? Diastolic um, and then they looked at, uh, they wanted to see what does the term MRI look like? Uh, are there difference, uh, differences in vol, uh, the volumetric studies of the MRI? And then they looked at um, some of the neurodevelopmental outcomes using the Bailey, um, our standard, <laughs> and, and the MCHAT. So people who aren't as familiar with that, the modified checklist for autism and toddlers, which was performed at 22 months. Um, if you're not familiar with using uh, volumetric data, so um, there are a few there are a few atlases for uh, looking at brain volumes of the different structures in the neonatal brain. Um, probably the most predominantly used is the North Carolina Infant Brain oh. Atlas, which they used, um, and uh, it helps map the parts of the brain uh, based on. Uh, larger data sets of, of brain volumes. So the current study sample had 314 participants born very preterm, 49 uh, delineated as IUGR and very preterm, and 265 babies who were um, appropriate for gestational age, still very preterm. The demographic differences in these two groups were really only in birth weight, the birth weight percentile, um, which is not surprising uh, that that that's this is what, this, this is what, <laughs> that's what we're looking at. <laughs> and the total intracranial uh, volume, which uh, is interesting. So yeah. what they found is that um, very preterm babies who are also IUGR compared with infants who were born um, appropriate for gestational age 
had smaller relative gray matter volume, particularly in the limbic component. So that is your amygdala, your hippocampus, um, a lot of your emotional regulation. But they had larger relative gray matter volume in the frontoinsular, the temporal parietal, and the frontal components. Um, so this is interesting. This um, mirrors a lot of other brain volume studies where some parts of the brain um, that are uh, being utilized actually have, they get over, uh, over connections of the dendrites and some of them actually have atrophy. And so this mm -hmm. mirrors uh, those studies very well. Um, in total, we had 90% of the whole cohort um, able to do the follow-up assessment, which, you know, week after week when we do this, I'm surprised how they're able to, to do such great follow-up. And um, there were no differences between those 10% uh, who didn't follow up and the 90% who did follow up in terms of rates of IUGR or other demographic characteristics. And that's something that people are starting to do, which is uh -huh. like, if they do lose some follow-up, trying to look right. at who are, are the people who lost... Yeah. Did you lose the sicker ones to follow up or did right. you lose the, the better ones, better one meaning more healthy? So I think that's sure. kind of nice too. Very important. Yeah. Um, and so interestingly enough, the, the toddlers, the 22 month uh, babies who were IAGR um, compared to those toddlers who were AGA also, you know, still born very preterm had lower Bailey scores. Um, and they also had a, uh, individual components that were lower, cognitive, motor, and language, they were also more likely to score positively on the MCHAP. When they did the adjustments for sex, um, IMD, which is the um, their index of multiple deprivation, which um, acts as like a, a marker for um, socioeconomic risk, uh, gestational age and total intracranial volume, there were still significant um, differences. Uh, so lower scores for cognition, motor, and then more frequent MCHAT positivity and those preterm group born IUGR. And then they looked at um, the, were the cognitive, were the scores uh associated with different brain volume measurements. So lower cognitive scores were associated with larger volumes of the frontal and occipital components. Lower motor scores were associated with larger volumes of the parietal component and no significant difference in size of volumetric components um, was found in those babies who screened positive uh, or negative on, on the MCHAT screening. So the babies who were at risk for autism or had symptoms consistent with um, you know, early features of autism, they actually didn't have differences on the, on the volumetric components. So I thought this was an interesting paper. Um, we may not have talked about that. I have done, I was hand doing volumetric studies as a fellow. And so this totally is, is, is up my alley. Um, but it, I think what it speaks to is that that IUGR population, you know, we feel like they have increased risks for, um, comorbidities in the NICU, but we should, you know, realize that they have ongoing increased risk, even, even if they have a, a benign course in the NICU, um, in terms of neurodevelopment. I think, I think that was the key, right? That was one of their key findings, which I think were very interesting is that they showed that the, um, being IUGR in and of itself is right. probably conferring even more risk right. uh, regarding long-term outcomes than just prematurity alone. Mm -hmm. I think that was that was quite striking, and I think um, 
And I think we often confound IUGR with just being small and mm -hmm. forget that being small, meaning your brain is also very much affected by that. So that's, right. that's a good reminder. In terms of the MCHAT, babies who were IUGR were more likely to have autism? Yes. Yeah. So, and they right, are. And, right. So, so, so they are. And, and it's like, what, 40, 44% compared to 27%, right? Yeah. That, was, that was striking, especially considering that, um, considering that we don't know the causes of autism. I think this is another piece to that puzzle uh, as to... Um, as to what's going on in the, in the brain. It's kind of, it's, kind of fasc it's fascinating that we still haven't figured this out. Well, and I think so much of our counseling around neurodevelopment is really around intraventricular hemorrhage. And the fact of the matter is that there's so much more, um, it's so much more complicated than that. And so we, you know, we owe it to families to do the studies and we owe it to families to talk about some of these risk factors um, because they are not insignificant about how they affect um, life at home, life at school. And so um, making sure that we get them the resources. Yeah. And, so and, and this goes back and this goes back to the potential meaningful uses of term equivalent MRI, mm -hmm. which, which, which again, still is, are being debated as should we still do them, not do them resources there. It's whatever. it's a uh, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, I wanted to also do um, uh, this other paper in the Journal of Pediatrics: um, Enteral Iron Supplementation in Infants Born Extremely Preterm, and its positive correlation with neurodevelopment. A post hoc analysis of the preterm erythropoietin neuroprotection trial, uh, the peanut trial, uh, randomized uh -huh. control trial. So, lead author Kendall R. German. Um, and so this was uh, a post hoc analysis of the peanut uh, study. So for those of you who are, aren't familiar with the peanut trial, it's a, it was a multi-site prospective randomized placebo controlled trial conducted to look at was there a neuroprotective effect of babies who are born preterm between 24 weeks and 27 and six, seven weeks of gestation um, who got EPO and the associated iron components um, versus those babies who got placebo. So we're not exposed to EPO. And um, to summarize, really, uh, their kind of preliminary findings were that babies who received EPO um, definitely had lower numbers and lower volumes of blood transfusions. So um, there was definitely an impact on um, uh, anemia but they didn't find differences between the EPO and the placebo groups at 22 to 26 months of age in the primary outcomes of death or severe neurologic impairment or in their um, proposed secondary outcome of death or moderate to severe neurodevelopmental impairment. Yeah, so this was this was a huge paper, right? Because yeah. we we started using EPO. I mean, I I had I was tasked with writing our EPO protocol, right. right? And so the big question was, do we use it for anemia or do we use mm -hmm. it for neuroprotection? And so that paper really answered that question, saying for anemia and reducing blood transfusions, yes, for uh, using it for neuroprotection, at least at this time, there's no sign that this this provides any neuroprotection in preterm babies. So. What was great is the group saw that there were maybe some signals that there was still something useful to look at here. And so what they identified was that maybe it's not the anemia specifically or the lack of anemia, but is it something related to the iron load? Mm -hmm. And so um, what was actually interesting about this study is that um, use of iron supplementation was a 
part of the trial, but um, they didn't have really standardized um, iron dosing. And so babies in the trial got a range of iron supplementation doses. And so it really sets up this perfect situation to look at this spectrum of doses. And so now they've looked at the cumulative iron dose and neurodevelopmental outcomes at two years of corrected age is assessed by the Bailey scales of development. Interestingly, I wonder what would have happened if they specified the iron dose for the EPO for the peanut trial. That's a good that, point. The, but that's the, a conversation for a different day. Right. The problem is that there's no there's no strong data as to what would be the appropriate dose. dose. And then there's there's and then for the people who are listening, the these trials have some some centers have a lot of options, mm -hmm. like providing right. IV iron mm -hmm. to preterm neonates. Great. At, which is which is fine, but for the institutions we've been on, for example, we've had difficulty mm -hmm. getting IV iron for for babies, and so uh, it provides challenges. Um, and and so so that's that's again why the 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 paper is so good because these multi center trials actually have to deal with the different. Uh, parameters in each center. Yeah, the real world, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, so the group hypothesized that there would be a positive association between iron dose and um, the Bailey 3 scores um, with a greater cumulative iron dose correlating with improved outcomes. So they had um, 692 infants in this kind of sub-cohort, 355 placebo-treated and 337 EPO-treated included in the analysis. There were no significant differences between the maternal or neonatal characteristics. Um, not surprisingly, those infants treated with EPO did receive greater cumulative iron supplementation because that was a part of the protocol. Um, and they could have gone up and they could go up at, uh, as high as 12, 12. megs per kilo per, per day. day. Yeah. I know. So <laughs> I remember when I was writing my protocol, I was like, I'm not putting 12. I'm going to get murdered by the entire staff. Advice we're gonna... Well, I, and I mean, at almost every institution I've been at, the fear is, is iron overload, overload and uh -huh. iron toxicity, which is what I think was a really valuable point of this paper. And we're, mm -hmm. we're getting ahead of ourselves, which we do sometimes. <laughs> um, so uh, there was a consistently positive linear relationship between the cumulative iron intake at day 60 and the Bailey three scores for both treatment arms. So um, the babies who got EPO and had more iron had better scores, and the babies who didn't get EPO but got more iron in their group still had better Bailey scores. Um, and then they looked at um, a positive but statistically insignificant association between iron dose and Bailey scores um, seen in kind of all infants when they lumped them together. Mm -hmm. um, and that the observed effect size was still greater in the EPO-treated group. So the babies who got EPO and who also got higher doses of iron um, had the highest Bailey scores, uh, but not significantly different from the effect among the placebo-treated neonates. And they even, you always like this, they had an increase of 50 milligrams per kilogram of cumulative enteral iron at day 60 was associated with a greater mean cognitive score uh, increase of 0.77 points. Um, Highlighted and starred that's on that right. paper. <laughs> I'm sure it was. <laughs> I was like, that, ben likes that, which which is not a lot of points, but if you continue to add cumulative enteral iron and you have cumulative 0.77 points, they start to add up. 
It's a cumulative exactly, dose. It's a cumulative dose, Exactly. Right? So that's exactly what they found. When we adjusted for the cumulative IV iron, the positive impact of cumulative um, iron on Bailey 3 scores became stronger in magnitude. Um, and so they looked at this across uh, all of the iron doses, and their, their figures are excellent. So I'm, we will definitely include some of those. And they had this consistently positive linear association between the iron dose and the neurodevelopmental outcomes. They didn't even really have a fall off, uh, as, as they describe it, in the curve at the greater iron doses. So trying to target that question is, is there a certain threshold where iron overload or toxicity is seen and then we don't see any more of this positive um, effect? And they didn't see any of that. And then they also didn't see any flattening of the curve. It really is a truly, truly like linear um, that they didn't at least with these doses, find any saturation point. And so they looked at this at 60 days and they looked at it at 90 days um, and it had attenuated strength of association at 90 days. So certainly the early iron exposure seemed to have the most effect. They found that greater transfusion volumes was associated with lower Bailey 3 scores, which was interesting. So um, is it that because they got less EPO or is it because the babies were sicker requiring more um, transfusions? We don't know, but that's interesting to note. And then they took, uh, I really impressed, they took a stab at, at what should our iron dosing be um, mm -hmm. based on their study. And so their recommendations were four megs per kg per day once infants are seven days old and tolerating at least 60 mLs per kilo venereal feeds. And then iron doses should be adjusted to achieve the ferritin and zinc uh, portoprofen to heme ratio values within a goal of 76 to 400 nanograms per milliliter, which I've never used ever. So this is something no, that, that we can definitely evaluate in the future. But they're not saying just keep going up and up on the iron either. They're saying take a look at your individual baby and what are their ratios and um, could, could they use more iron? Mm -hmm. So... I thought this was an interesting uh, study for sure. Um, I, I'm glad that they took a closer look at the data. Um, and I think there's probably still more information in this study. It was such a big study, um, such an important study that I think we'll still, we'll still be getting more information. What did you think? I'm so happy that study came out. Number one, because when, I don't know if you remember when we were pediatric residents that um, we did give iron supplementation to our toddlers, right? And we mm -hmm. said, this is very important for brain development, mm -hmm. for IQ. Yeah. And Why so, not for the preemies? <laughs> exactly. And it, so it never, it never was a question in my mind that iron supplementation to prevent sense. anemia would have long-term mm -hmm. impact on their, on their intelligence. So the fact that this paper comes out as a as a as a postdoc analysis of the peanut trials is great because it actually makes the point that it's not all about reducing transfusion, but it's also optimizing um, iron intake. Um, it also, I think, in my opinion, highlights something that's not mentioned in the paper, which, like we said, if you don't have access to IV iron, it means that you're going to have to be committed to efficient feeding protocols, mm -hmm. right? Because you need to get to that 60 ml per kilo mm -hmm. per day of enteral feeds to actually start giving iron. And you can no longer be wishy-washy about extending these NPO windows where kids are NPO for 
10 days and like you don't feed a, a kid, like you, you're going to need to crank up the feed so that you can start administering these supplements. Well, and there's iron in, there's iron in the food, right? <laughs> so True. that's right. Is, so the iron also, load yeah. just in the diet. Is, I know. So. And it's very surprising. Mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm working on this mobile app for mm -hmm. nutrition is because we tend to underestimate how much iron is in our, is in the baby's formula. And if you do start at six, eight milligrams per kilo, assuming you're giving zero iron in your formula, you're going to give pretty large amount of iron to the baby. Yeah. So, to the uh, converse, yeah. I think that we use certain formulas um, in, in the unit and one in particular that is almost deficient and I totally has no iron. And so mm -hmm. I think we can't, we all can't wait to see your mobile app so that way we can, we can optimize all of our micronutrients, right? My, my team was on vacation for Diwali. <laughs> <laughs> well, they deserve it. They've been hard at work. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Where do you want to go next? Um, I want to take a little, uh, intermission and mm. do this caffeine paper. Mm -hmm. I thought this was a fun paper. So this is a paper. Listen, I've been, I've been, I, I thought when I became an attending, uh, you know, I wasn't a fellow anymore that my caffeine intake would decrease. And no, the, the opposite is, is true. And in the last few months, my caffeine intake has become exponential. So I'm curious I, to see what it does to the babies. I'm, I am wondering why you ever thought your caffeine intake would go down <laughs> by being an attending. Um, your null hypothesis um, <laughs> is probably. <laughs> this is a paper published in um, in pediatric research. It's called "Caffeine is a respiratory stimulant without effect on sleep in the short term mm -hmm. and late preterm infants." They're giving away some of the mm -hmm. conclusion in the right in, in the, the title. That's title. a shame. <laughs> uh, the The first author. This is a paper from a group out of Helsinki. And I'm going to butcher their name. First author is Maija Seppa Moylanen. And um, sorry. <laughs> well, you know, uh, our friend uh, Alvaro is always saying that we should have uh, a way to to learn, learn the pronounce. author's name uh, in, in the paper. And I, that would be particularly important for us. <laughs> I agree. We're, agree. It would, we're trying. Uh, we're trying. We're but trying. we need some help. <laughs> And so um, the, the paper starts off by mentioning, obviously, that in adults and adolescents, uh, caffeine acts as a CNS stimulant, and it alters sleep quality by reducing total sleep time and sleep efficiency, prolonging sleep latency and reducing subjective sleep quality. Um, and in clinical practice, infants seem to sleep well, even when on high-dose caffeine for apnea treatment. And so the aim of the study was really to investigate whether short-term of caffeine on sleep in late preterm infants with polysomnography. So I think that was very interesting, mm -hmm. trying to see if, uh, because we shoot them up with caffeine, whether they're just uh, just more uh, more awake uh, and really having difficulties. I sleeping. don't know. It doesn't keep me from falling asleep. The caffeine, so. <laughs> we give them very high dose for their weight. So that's that's interesting. And we want to give them even more now to uh, extremely low birth weight infants. So we'll find out. So anyway, they performed a polysomnography recording in 21 infants born preterm in the neonatal unit of Helsinki University Hospital in Finland. Um, basically, at the time of the study, the infants were clinically stable with no respiratory support mm -hmm. or caffeine treatment. Mm -hmm. So that was very interesting, obviously, yeah. because we tend to start caffeine almost on admission if we suspect apnea prematurity. But these are babies that were not on caffeine and then were subsequently evaluated for apnea and then started on caffeine. The studied infants were, some yeah. some of them some of them were on caffeine but had completed a caffeine course and then they were being reevaluated. And had been off. That's exactly. Right. 
The studied infants were considered by the clinician in charge to need caffeine treatment for apneas with desaturation or excessive periodic breathing. Breathing. The study infants underwent full polysomnography studies to investigate respiratory events and sleep on day one. And so that's how they, they broke it down. On day one, they had a baseline recording followed by the administration of caffeine citrate, loading dose of 20 mg per kilo. Caffeine treatment was continued with a daily dose of 5 mg per kilo. And on day two, after onset of caffeine treatment, a second recording was performed. Um, you can go um, into the, the methods when it comes to the polysomnography not a sleep medicine expert, but they do go over all the details of the EEG patterns and all the measurement they did. I think what's important is that arousal uh, was defined as a period of three seconds or more with a sustained increase in chin EMG with or, with or without changes in the EEG signal, because obviously that's what they're looking at in terms of arousal secondary to the caffeine. And they determined that respiratory pauses of four seconds or more as apneas. So uh, without uh, much um, much further ado, the the, the results. Um, so they were able to have twenty one infants uh, that were um, four point seven weeks uh, on the median the median age. The gestational age was thirty six weeks, and uh, they were born at a median of thirty one weeks, uh, with a birth weight of uh, with a median birth weight of one point six kilos. None of the infants received respiratory support or supplemental oxygen directly before the the study. 67% of the infants had previous caffeine treatment, as you mentioned, which was discontinued at a median of eight days before the study onset. I think that was important for them to mention because of, of half-life issue. So the caffeine acted as a short-term breathing stimulant. It reduced the number of apneas, the frequency of oxygen saturation, desaturations, increased median SpO2 levels, and decreased the high 95th percentile and tidal CO2 level. Mm -hmm. But caffeine did not show significant effect on breathing frequency. When it, looking at the sleep characteristic, baseline polysomnography recording lasted longer than recording after the onset of caffeine treatment, but there was no significant difference in sleep efficiency. All the main sleep attributes remain similar in both study phases. Mm -hmm. Sleep stage distribution, frequency of sleep stage transitions, REM sleep latency, and other characteristic of REM sleep showed no significant changes during caffeine treatment. Um, that's pretty much it. And so the, the conclusion, <laughs> the conclusion of the paper is that uh, caffeine is a, is a, it it increases the arousal frequency to hypoxia, so that mm -hmm. when the kids did get hypoxic, they they aroused quick more quickly. But it did not really act as a CNS stimulant mm -hmm. uh, and affect their sleep quality. So that was cool. That babies can have a good night's sleep. That's right. You know, you know, I I wrote I have a, a review article on neonatal sleep. Um, they didn't cite my article, but I have one. <laughs> and, and this is a really important study. There's so much we still don't understand about neonatal sleep. Um, and the fact that they were able to complete a full uh, gamut polysomnography on, on these infants, I think is really valuable to show that we can do it. It's safe to do it. Um, and that we have a method to keep studying um, neonatal sleep. The other thing they talked about, um, which is kind of becoming a hot topic is um, heart rate variability. Yeah. So looking at the beat to beat variability um, in heart rate. Um, and so it, it kind of explains the interplay with, between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. It's a pretty good marker of 
uh, well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one might suspect that if you are highly caffeinated, that that might uh, change your your heart rate variability somewhat. And they showed that it didn't. Um, and so I thought that was um, also very interesting. And, you know, it's interesting because we still don't really understand why caffeine works for our babies, right? You know, we have, we make some assumptions. And so I think more studies like this will help us understand that a little bit better. Does your, does your paper touch on whether babies have dreams or not? Um, it does not specifically touch on that. Uh, it talks more about the sleep-wake cycles where we mm-hmm. can hypothesize if babies have dreams or not. I think people have hypothesized, people have hypothesized that they do. They do. But we that- that is the hypothesis. But we don't know what they dream about. <laughs> uh, I know. I can't remember my dreams. That's what I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't expect the babies to either. No. <laughs> um, there are a few other really good studies. I yeah. wanted sure. to talk about this um, study about lung ultrasound. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, another paper from the Journal of Pediatrics. Um, lung ultrasound for prediction dream preterm neonates, a prospective diagnostic cohort study. Um, Lead author Adele Mohammed, um, this is coming to us from Toronto, Canada. And Mm -hmm. so this was a prospective diagnostic cohort study conducted between July 2019 and December 2020, um, recruiting infants less than 29 weeks at two tertiary care uh, NICUs at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto and Health Sciences Centre in um, Winnipeg. And so what they did is they took this cohort, a total of 152 infants um, who were less than uh, 29 weeks gestational age. They had a mean gestational age of actually 25.8 weeks, um, and uh, they wanted to see if doing early lung ultrasounds would predict uh, the the development of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. And just so we're all talking about the same thing uh, for definitions, their outcome measure of interest was BPD as defined as the supplemental use of oxygen or respiratory support at 36 weeks of postmenstrual age um, or at the time of discharge. And they did use the classification system, mild, moderate, and severe, using the NICHD uh, definition. Um, So I told you the mean gestational age was 25 weeks. The mean birth weight was 923 grams, so pretty big group, 44% male, and 72% had received antenatal steroids. Good for them. (laughs) Um, So what they did is for this group, uh, they waited the first 72 hours because all of these babies were on their uh, kind of neuroprotection bundles. Um, But on day three, um, the babies uh, underwent lung ultrasound. On day seven, plus or minus one day, the babies went uh, underwent a second lung ultrasound. And on day 14, plus or minus two days, the babies underwent a third lung ultrasound. And then they performed the lung ultrasound score um, by two separate people scanning for each zone of bilateral lungs. So for each baby, they had six zones total, and then they provided a cumulative score for the infant. And then um, for people who are invested in point of care ultrasound and how that's still kind of a developing technology in the NICU, I think they did something that was really important that I wanted to highlight. So then they took 20% of the scans and they reassessed them by other people so that they could really feel like they had um, 
good heterogeneity, uh, homogeneity, excuse mm-hmm. me, um, about uh, their definitions of uh, the lung ultrasound score. So over time, 57% of this cohort was diagnosed with BPD. Um, The lung ultrasound scores were significantly higher in infants diagnosed with BPD compared with infants not diagnosed with BPD at every scan time point. So even at the three-day lung ultrasound, it predicted BPD. Um, A score of greater than 10 at all three scan time points had a higher sensitivity um, with specificity of uh, 80% um, and uh, clinically relevant positive and negative likelihood ratios. And so they show their area under the curve for lung ultrasounds using all three scanning time points. um, And it it shows an area under the curve of 0.94. So very highly predictive Mm -hmm. of, of BPD. And I think it just goes to show you um, some babies really are just from, from the get-go are, will, ha- will develop BPD. And there are so many things we don't understand about which babies those are early on, I think, um, that potentially no matter what, we, no, right now, no matter what we do for them, that the, they're developing BPD. Yeah. But I think it's helpful um, that potentially we will treat babies different in the future based on their BPD. Yeah, and this is this is our way of getting as close as we can to potential histological sample, right? I mean, technically, we're not going to biopsy their lungs. Technically, we're not going to put them through high-resolution CT. Um, and considering that BPD is a, is a direct product of arrest and development, uh, it makes sense that early ultrasound should start identifying um, some findings that could tell you that based on the degree of lung development you you can have you can have severe BPD or or you can have BPD down the road. So I think it shows a lot of promise and uh, yeah, absolutely. And the, and the the lung ultrasound score, which I don't know that we have the time to go all the way into, but um, the the lung characteristics, the A lines, the B lines, B lines those are right. things that are easily taught. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think this has a lot of value. It doesn't require any extra um, radiation. And the other point is that some people are really worried about scanning little babies in the first week of life. And, and I think at a minimum, this study showed that they, they were able to do that safely. Yeah. We're getting a nice ultrasound machine in our new hospital. Mm-hmm. Or we're moving to a Monday. So that's, yeah, we're going to start doing that kind of stuff. Huh? I hope so. Let me uh, let me mention this paper. Obviously, this is <clears throat> for for our listeners. I think this, this is one of the missions of the show is to keep you up to date. So there's there's a Cochrane paper, a paper from the Cochrane Library that is out called "Early Systemic Postnatal Corticosteroids for Prevention of Bronchopulmonary Dysplasia in Preterm Infant." First author is Lex Doyle. Um, there's um, a lot of of famous author on this. Uh, on this, on this, uh, on this paper, uh, Brett Manley as well. Um, so anyway, it's interesting because as, as you mentioned, when the paper showed up on our folder of papers to review, you said, didn't we do something like that recently? And Lex Doyle did write a very right. thorough review yeah. of, uh, the use of cortic of steroids in, in the prevention of BPD in neonatology. So you can always go back to that episode or to that paper, but, uh, this is obviously, um, a, uh, a much more specific paper because it looks at early administration of steroids. And um, and it's interesting because they are looking obviously at the most common ones because that's what most studies have looked at, dexamethasone and hydrocortisone. They looked at primary outcomes of mortality, BPD, uh, 
death or BPD and long-term outcome, including blindness, deafness, CP, and major neurodevelopmental disability. Um, so they, they included a total of 32 studies. 21 studies used primarily dexamethasone. And it's interesting because they said that the most common regimen, and it's important to mention that it was 0.5 mg per kilo per day of, of dexamethasone for three days, followed by 0.25 for three days, then 0.12 mg per kilo per day for three days, followed by 0.05 mg per kilo per day for three days. And then uh, 11 out of 32 studies used hydrocortisone. The doses was very variable. Some used almost physiologic doses, um, and some did not. Some were using it for management of hypotension. So it's, it's a bit difficult to tease apart um, yeah, how hydrocortisone was used. But I think the findings were quite interesting. We'll, we'll go into them um, relatively quickly. But when it came to um, mortality, there was no evidence to suggest that early postnatal corticosteroid treatment reduced mortality at 28 days of life or at 36 weeks of postmenstrual age or before discharge or at the latest possible um, age to determine the outcome. When it came to BPD, um, it was very interesting because, the, and, and we're not going to go too much into detail because the idea of corticosteroids preventing BPD, there's tons of data out there, but early systemic corticosteroids reduce the incidence of BPD defined as needing oxygen at 28 days of life and at 36 weeks postmenstrual age. Um, there was a reduction in BPD at 36 weeks among survivors. Early systemic steroids reduced the need for later steroids and um, and among survivors. Let's we'll, we'll go into we'll skip ahead of the paper and look at some of the data that they presented when they looked at specific steroid types, and I think that's what's interesting. So when they're looking at BPD, they said most of the benefits of early systemic steroids in reducing the incidence of BPD was provided by dexamethasone with little effect of hydrocortisone, regardless of the definition of BPD. Benefits of reducing the need for oxygen at 36 weeks in survivors or of providing late rescue with postnatal steroids were also largely confined to the dexamethasone group. Strong evidence shows uh, subgroup differences with low p-values for interaction. Fine. Um, I'll take that back. But um, so we know... We know that dexamethasone is the one that, that is really, really effective, especially when compared to hydrocortisone. But then if you go through the paper and you look at some of the other outcomes, um, it becomes a bit more tedious because when you're looking at complications and you're looking at gastrointestinal complications, like intestinal perforation, and uh, when you're looking at long-term effects such as cerebral palsy, developmental delay, then those are also associated with dexamethasone. And so I think... Um, it's difficult to um, it's difficult to to provide a, a clear endpoint when it comes to the recommendations, and I think the implications for practice at the end of the of the paper quite summarize the dilemma that we're facing when it comes to deciding between dexamethasone and hydrocortisone when it comes to early corticosteroid use. And I'm just going to read you this, and then we can move on to the next one because we're going to start running low on time. But they said benefits of early systemic postnatal steroids for preterm infants at risk of developing BPD may not, and I repeat, may not outweigh the real or potential adverse effects. Early systemic postnatal corticosteroid treatment resulted in short-term benefits, including earlier extubation, decreased risk of BPD, and of death or BPD at 28 days of life and at 36 weeks postmenstrual age but was associated with a significant short-term and long-term adverse effects. Adverse effects included short-term risk of gastrointestinal bleeding, intestinal perforation, hyperglycemia, 
hypertension, as well as long-term risks of abnormal neurological examination finding and cerebral palsy. However, the methodological quality of studies determining long-term outcome was limited in some cases. Children were assessed predominantly before school age, and no study was sufficiently powered to detect the important adverse long-term neurosensory outcome. Therefore, given the risk of potential short-term and long-term adverse effects versus potential short-term benefits, the review supports curtailment of early systemic corticosteroids treatment for prevention of BPD. And, and here I we think, are. What? And here we are. But they are saying that the findings from the studies on hydrocortisone, which are still in their infancy, are showing, I guess, quote-unquote, promise. Mm-hmm. So this is, the well, I think is not the, the easy answer is that there are probably some babies that are the right group to choose, and there are some babies that are probably the wrong babies to expose. We just don't know which group that I is think, yet. I think it's, it's hard. When you're looking at early administration of hydrocortisone, like they said, some of them give it for physiologic doses for BPD prevention. Some of them are doing it for hypotension. It's so hard to, to, to figure out um, how, to, how to interpret this data. So yeah, I, I, guess, I guess more, more to come. More to come. And we do know that there's probably this group of babies. It's probably not all of them, the little babies, but there's probably a group of babies that truly do have some degree of adrenal insufficiency. And so something about hydrocortisone as opposed to the other steroids, um, I, I think potentially has has promise, but we, we haven't identified which babies those are yet. Mm-hmm. Should we do one more and close the show with one more? Um. Yeah, did you have one you wanted to do? I thought this um, umbilical catheter. Agreed, that's the one I wanted to do, especially yeah. because it was uh, recommended to us by uh, one of our that's Twitter right. followers. Um, and I really wanted to make a point to address address that paper because it was it was kindly brought to our attention um, by one of our listeners. You want me to go? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Um, no, <laughs> I, was, is, I was just... You were looking for just, the tweet. I was looking for the tweet. So the person that the person that recommended the paper is John Feister, a, a neonatology fellow at Stanford. So um, thank you for for pointing out the paper. And uh, yeah, I think keep the recommendations coming. Um, so this is in Journal of Perinatology, um, a novel and accurate method for estimating umbilical arterial and venous catheter insertion length. Um, lead author Christina Tembasco. Um, this is out of Yale University. So. I thought this was pretty innovative, right? They took something mm-hmm. that we do all the time. We've been doing the same way for a very long time, uh, which is uh, measuring, deciding on the the insertion depth of umbilical catheters. Um, and so they looked at, they did a retrospective component review of infants from January 2016 to December 8, 2018, who had successful umbilical line placements. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, in their unit, in most units, um, we're using insertion lengths estimated by the Shukla equations. Um, with then we take the x-ray and we make changes based on um, where those lines ended up in those babies. And so particularly for our trainees, if you feel like, well, gosh, I'm always having to reposition the lines. <laughs> I think the study shows that, yes, that's in fact true for most of us. <laughs> um, and so uh, 
much like most of us do, their target um, positioning was for a UAC catheter tip between the sixth and ninth thoracic vertebra, um, but they used an acceptable position as between the sixth and tenth thoracic vertebra, and then the optimal UVC position defined as a catheter tip measuring between 0.5 centimeters below and one centimeter above the right hemidiaphragm uh, medially on, um, on an AP radiograph. And so they looked at all of the babies in this retrospective review um, to see uh, how frequently um, the lines needed to be repositioned um, after using the equations that we were all used to using. Uh -huh. um, and then they derived a model using their own data. Um, so they took the final insertion lengths um, and adjusted them to account for basically the difference of the position that they found the <laughs> they found the catheter minus T8 as a proxy for the midpoint of T6 to T9. Um, and the final insertion lengths of UACs and UVCs were also plotted against birth weight. And then they made equations for line for trend lines um, mm -hmm. using statistical modeling and internal validation. Um, insertion lengths for discrete birth weight ranges were then derived by rounding outcome variables to the nearest 0.5 centimeters for UACs and 0.25 centimeters for UVCs um, to basically form data tables um, based on birth weight. Then they created a really cool mobile app. Did you download it? I did. Yeah, I'm sure you did. <laughs> it's called AmbiCalc. It's uh, super easy to use. Um, it's free. And they also inputted this into their um, Epic EMR um, so that it would program the insertion length estimates automatically um, for both UACs and UVCs when, the, when they made their procedure note. And then they took this model and they used a prospective cohort from June 2020 to November 2020, um, where they either used the UMBI calculator or uh, UMBI calc, and UMBI calc or they used right. the EPIC EMR to um, basically give them the right depth of insertion based on uh, the birth weight. And then the umbilical catheters were advanced to the estimated insertion length. Um, and then they wanted to see uh, how accurate was the model. So were they able to get the line in the right position on the first attempt? And then they used uh, radiographs to, to predict the final um, position. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of math here. I know you dug this too about all of their math equations. They're all here. So yeah. for anybody who wants to replicate it, it's here. Or you can use the MBCalc. So they had 597 UACs, 629 UVCs placed in 804 infants during that 36-month uh, retrospective study period. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Basically, what they found in the retrospective, so the first group of babies, that the Shukla equation successfully predicted acceptable insertion length in 69% of UACs and only 36% of UVCs in, uh, in this group of infants. And so they had to do a lot of adjustments, which, which is we all know the pain of sitting and waiting oh, for the waiting next x-ray. And then um, during their six-month prospective period where they used their own modeling and the UmbiCalc, um, they placed 164 umbilical catheters in 112 infants, the median gestational age of which were 31 weeks, uh, but ranged from 22 to 41 weeks, a median birth weight of 1650, but ranged from 490 to 4660. So um, big babies and little babies. Mm -hmm. 
And so basically what they found is that their new prediction model uh, provided correct insertion length estimates in 90% of UACs and 76% of UVCs on the um, first attempt. So improved success rates in all the birth weight categories because then they looked at babies um, by... uh, gestational age, but also by birth weight. They were specifically interested in the smallest babies, where as we all know, um, it's it's difficult to, to keep the correct line position. Um, and so even in the smallest babies, less than 750 grams, um, they had um, exceptional uh, success rates. Um, in that group, in in particular, 81% of UACs and 77% of UVC placements using the new equations compared to 44% of UACs and 32% of UVCs using our typical models. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think that was pretty cool. Number one, because it's a paper that usually they do these things. Most of papers I've seen, like they come up with a with a with an equation, and then the app, co- and then the app comes later. But this was so nice that they had they had the paper, the app, every you could you can get everything, the whole bundle right away. Um, and I think it's something that's that's important to do. I also think that this type of paper, specifically addressing umbilical line position, is something that is direly needed right now. Mm-hmm. But I feel like once point of care ultrasound is everywhere, mm-hmm. we won't use calculations anymore. We'll just like put the probe and look at the right. position and call it a day. Until then, I I still need to use these these calculators. And the the on Twitter when the discussion started around this paper, people said, mm-hmm. "Oh, let, let me. I'm going to start using it." But obviously, I, I didn't want to start using it. I wanted to compare because I have a little app on my phone that used the 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 Shukla equation, right? Mm-hmm. And so I started plugging in different weights and trying to see how the two the two um, the two compare. And I have to say, when you're looking at bigger birth weights, so like closer to a kilo or past a kilo, they're fairly similar. Right. Both the the umbicalc and the Shukla equation. So I don't know if it's going to make that much of a difference there. However, when you go way way down in the mm-hmm. birth weights, you start looking at like six hundred grammers, four hundred grammers. You can see a, a, a gap in the in the output of these calculations. And I think from memory, at least, this is something that has given me trouble in the past where mm. it's a, an extremely low birth weight infant. You, exactly. you calculate it and then you put it be like, really, I have to pull it even more. And, and you're like, but it's already, the UVC is already at five. Like you want, so I think this is going to be my go-to, especially when it's going to come to, uh, to extremely, extremely low birth weight, like less than 750. Because I think this is where the Shukla equation has has given me more trouble in the past. So yeah, I mean, yeah, again we for- we experience that, right? The big babies, you rarely have to make any major adjustments, but those little babies, you feel like you're in, out, back uh-huh. a little bit, <laughs> and, yeah, and, then, and the next day doing the the same you- thing. And it's it's critical, right? If we're trying to make our golden hour, for example, uh, waiting for a few additional X-rays or a few additional repositioning, um, really. Um, prolongs the time that you know if you and it's radiation the top open yeah the top's open and and then it's radiation radiation. for the for the adjacent beds and it's radiation for the staff and also when you have to when you put it too deep and you have to pull there's there's Mm. anxiety of like pulling in that uvc just a bit too much and then it's suddenly low-lying or falls into the in the liver and you're like damn (laughs) well and you know as a fellow you know you always you pulled up your first x-ray you know the first x-ray you're so proud and the attending says what what do you 
what are you trying to catheterize the baby? And you're like, I did the equation. I did the equation. And I don't know. I, I did the equation again and it's still where I would expect right. it. Yeah. So anyways, hopefully they will save some of our trainees, the embarrassment <laughs> on this little babies. But the Umbicalc is super easy to use. You can yeah. find it on the app store. I think the icon is purple. It has like, it's a, it's a, it's a, like a U with some, some gradation on it. So it's like a purple, it's a purple icon with a white U on it. Um, yeah, great, great paper and mm -hmm. super fun to play around with this app. Um, yeah, that was fun. Keep the recommendations coming. Right? Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Daphna? No, I think it's, it's late night for us here. Yeah. Florida. I want to, I want to just finish up the show by thanking everybody for downloading the episode with Kiliana. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. this is, Lots I didn't know how this was going to be received to, uh, to talk to a pharmacist. I didn't know if people were going to be as interested as, as we were to talk well, to her. Pharmacists are people too. I know, I know, <laughs> but you never know. This not, this not, has not really been done before as far as I know. And so it's so exciting. And so then I guess my, my feedback to the audience is if there are, other areas of the NICU and other people from the NICU that you want to hear from, um, let us know. I think we have some plans to, uh, to talk to uh, speech therapy. Um, but if you have any other ideas, keep them coming. We have lots of plans to talk to lots of people, but certainly we're happy to take recommendations. Kellyanne is like one of the coolest people I know. So, you know, that mm -hmm. doesn't. She sets either. a high standard. I yeah, think she sets great. a very high standard for pharmacists because she does so much. Yeah. But anyway. All right, Daphne, that was fun. I'll see yeah. you next week. Thanks, everybody. Be well. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUpodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.